0: Uh, today's scriptures from Romans 16, verses 1 through 7. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Kentria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people, and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, would you be with us in a very uh, rich way? May we hear from you. May you bring to light things that uh, may have been in the dark. Uh, may you challenge us where we need to be challenged. May you comfort us where we need to be comforted. Jesus, would you give us hope this morning? Let me pray this all in your heavenly name. Amen. Well, I want to talk to you this morning about why the church needs women in leadership. Uh, And before I go into that, let me just share with you why I, as a male, am teaching you why the church needs women in leadership. And I think it's important because it was just a little over a year ago, as we were nominating elders, shepherding elders into this church, that I preached something very differently. Um, and so, since that moment, it has been a, a journey for me. Um, it has been a journey for, from about February to August, so about six months, and, and that began with, after preaching that sermon, uh, many of you... We're gracious enough to say, Slim, I, I appreciate your point of view, but there's another way of seeing it. And what was, what was wild for me is I always thought that there is a way that people read these scriptures and said, well, I, I, I hear what they're saying, but I want to argue around the scriptures. And what you all were able to show and reveal to me was that there's a way to argue from the scriptures for this point. And that was wild for me. That was new for me. That, and this, this is what was sh- kind of earth-shattering because I'm thinking, I really respect you. I have so much high regard for you. How do you hold this view here? And you graciously walked me through it and gave me millions of articles. <laughs> so many podcasts. <laughs> so many books that I have plenty to, to recommend to you. And so I say all this, one, to, to give you um, some history of where, where I'm coming from so this, this is this is the tradition that I'm coming out of um, it, it, this is where this is why we're at where we're at today um, two to let you see it took me six months to think through this and so I don't presume that a, one sermon is going to uh, do it all that we won't be able to answer all of the questions um, but I hope it, at least it plants the seed because this is something that has <laughs> has got me excited to read the scriptures. It it, it has brought it to life in new ways. And so I hope I'm able to to come across gracious and winsome, but I'm excited about where we're at today. And so there is no funny illustration to begin the sermon because we have so much to cover. (laughs) This is a long sermon, and I did my best to even cut it back as much as I could. And so let's jump right into it. Here are the three points. We have the data, the discrepancies, and the dazzling implications. I know, I know. <laughs> I've been feeling it all week. <laughs> the data, the discrepancies, and the dazzling implications. All right. So the data. Now, the temptation for every single one of us, when we want to talk about uh, women in leadership in the church, is to go straight to 1 Corinthians, or First so Timothy two, and 1 Corinthians fourteen. The question is, what do we do with those texts? And I just want to say, don't go there yet. That's the temptation to go straight there. But I would say that, that's like trying to argue a theological foundation for the end times based off of one single verse or based off of one single book. We need to look at a broader view of Scripture. And so that's what I want to say when we want to look at the data or the data of, of Scripture is look, let's look at a wider view of all of Scripture and what does it tell us. And so that's what we're going to do. Let's look at it. Genesis 1. was going to be a long sermon, I told you. Genesis 1, 27. <laughs> so God created mankind... In his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And so from the get-go, God is showing an enormous amount of love and unity uh, across the genders here, right? He's showing that that, at the very basic level that we are created equally and that we are equally endued with the image of God. And at the very basic level that we, we depict God's image together. That it that it is male and female together here. And therefore each has dignity and worth and value. And this feels like a no-brainer from the get-go. But there's conversations that are had about and debates that are had based on that verse. Let's let's back it up. Genesis 2, 18 confirms this. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone, and so I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, that word helper does not mean servant, it does not mean valet. It does not mean caretaker. The word helper is this military term for ally, a military ally suitable for him uh, or partner. And that word is primarily used in the Old Testament referring to God as the helper to Israel. Psalm 3320, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help or helper and our shield. And so if, if that's how we're talking about God, we're not saying God is a caretaker or a valet, right? He, he, he is helping Israel as an essential partner in, in his work in subduing creation, right? Then the fall happens, Genesis 3. The curse comes about as a result of the fall. God gives the curse to the serpent, and then he comes to the woman in verse 16, and he says to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children, and your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, some have read this passage as prescriptive, not descriptive. As if this is to say, God, like we could say, see, God wants men to rule over women as this is the argument from this passage. But clearly, this is in the the result of the fall. This is the curses of the fall. And so it's not good for for men to rule over women when there is a power structure of, of lording over someone. I mean, this is right after the pains of childbirth, right? And so just as the pains of childbirth are not good, it is not good for a man to rule over a woman. It's the thorns of the curse of the fall, not the ideal. And because of the thorns, the world has always had patriarchal power structures throughout the history of the world. We see that all throughout history that men are over, they're ruling over and domineering women. And this is the soil that our Old and New Testaments are writing into. Into that thorny path in a culture where women are deemed as second-class citizens, where the priests would walk around the temple daily, Daily praying this prayer, Blessed art thou, O Lord God, for, making me a gen- for, for, for not making me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. The priests are daily walking around the, 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 the temple going, Thank you, Lord, for not making me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. This is, this is pretty wild. That this is, this is what this, this, these scriptures are written into. And yet... I would argue that the Old and the New Testament is surprisingly feminist. I know that's a loaded term. But what I mean by that is that the Old and the New Testament is saying that God is for women. We can look at at God using Miriam, uh, Aaron's sister, as a prophet during the time of Aaron, during the time of Moses, but he uses Miriam as a prophet. And in Numbers 12.1, it says, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife. They're saying that they're calling him out. And we could see God calling Deborah as a judge in Judges 4, four. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapideth, hopefully that's right, was leading Israel at the time. So Deborah is a judge, she's a prophet, and a judge is a combination of both a king in a, in, a, in a prophet. So they have this authoritative authoritatal, is the word I'm looking for, uh, role, overseeing and bringing order, but they are also they're also the prophet, the mouthpiece of God to God's people. And so then fast forward to 2 Kings 22. It's speaking of, of Huldah, a prophet and the mouthpiece of God. Esther was a queen and acts and rules with authority over God's people. This is so much, I know. And then we can jump to the New Testament. You have Mary, the mother of Jesus, who before Jesus is born, she preaches and sings this theologically rich song, this rebel song, teaching generations what Jesus' purpose here is. And, and to think about the most significant human being who teaches Jesus theologically is his mother. The one who teaches him the most is his mother. That's, that's his role model. And then you have Mary and Martha, we talked about last week, who, who, are, who are deemed as disciples at Jesus, sitting at his feet, learning from him. And yes, Jesus 12 chose the 12 male apostles we talked about the last week, and there were all kinds of reasons for that, practically and culturally. But just because they're male doesn't mean that's the loaded gun that you think it might be. <laughs> like Because the story of Jesus' passion highlights how all 12 males flee Jesus in this time and forsake him in this time and it was the women who stayed at the foot of the cross it was the women who were the first to the tomb it was the women who were the first to see the risen Jesus uh, and to preach the first Easter sermon that he is risen and it's because the women are the first to see the risen Lord and go tell the disciples Mary Magdalene the other women become the apostle to the apostles they are giving the good news to the apostles to then go And then we get to the early church, and women are are, are commended for their leadership roles in church. Priscilla expounded the word to Apollos. She corrected his theology, and he was known as a man well-versed in the scriptures in Acts 18. She was a church planter and teacher in Ephesus. Luke commends Philip's four daughters as prophets in the Caesarean church in Acts 21.9. The elder women in Titus 2 are commended to teach and manage their households. And then looking at our passage today in Romans 16, I know I'm going fast, but looking at our passage today in Romans 16, 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon. That is as clear as possible. She is holding an office in the church. She is an officer in the church. The denomination that we came out of didn't even recognize that. And this is straight from the Bible. There's no, there's, there's, there's no missing this right here. Like, she is being the one who, who, who brought the letter of Romans to Rome. She would have been the one who, to, to read it to the Romans and to answer questions in that moment. And in that sense, she would have been seen as a teacher. You might say a preacher of this. To read Romans to them, the most theologically rich bi- book in the Bible, you could argue, giving it to Phoebe to read, and to teach the, the Romans there. Then you look at Romans 16, 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Junia is a female name. So Junia is outstanding among the apostles. She is an apostle, which is Probably the highest level of authority you could have in the New Testament is one who who has seen the risen Lord Jesus and he has commanded them to go tell of his resurrection. He's commanded them to go share the good news. That Jesus has called her to do that. Okay, we don't believe that? Let's keep going through the New Testament. Philippians 4, Paul speaks of his co-workers, these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, It says, help these women since they have contended at my side in the course of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers. And that term co-workers is used to describe Titus in 2 Corinthians 8. It's used to describe Timothy, our brother and co-worker for God in proclaiming the gospel in 1 Thessalonians 3. And so God is using women to advance his gospel all throughout the Old and New Testaments. That to me is just, whoo, the data is there. And so to me, the burden of proof is actually on those who would want to restrict women from doing these works. To go against all of that data. Because Jesus and Paul and God are, are deploying them in tangible and important ways, teaching and preaching and prophesying with authority. I used to see that 1 Timothy 2 passage and that 1 Corinthians 14 passage as the norm, and I'd have to answer the other passages with that. But now looking at the all of Scripture scriptures and saying, this is normative. Then what do I do with those two passages? And so now it's at this point you might feel, and I, I feel too, I was there, your, your gut response might be going, like, I only agree with things that sound good to my argument, and I will disagree with things that are different than my my belief. And maybe your gut response at this point might be, yeah, but I have church history on my side. Who are you in the 21st century to think you have the, the, the gall to say, oh, now we figured it out because church history forever has said this is not the way it should be. What pride you may have here in 2022 to assume something different. And I would just say, this is one area you do not want church history on your side. Because if you look at church history, what their view of women actually is, is pretty, pretty bad. It's really hard hard for me even to to bring up. Because the historical position of the church is that women are inferior. I mean, I I could give you a thousand quotes arguing that women are the gateway to the devil. But I'm only going to give you a couple here today, just to make the point. (laughs) Origin. Here we go. Get ready to to be angry. Origin. Men should not sit and listen to a woman. Even if she says admirable things or even saintly things, that is of little consequence since it came from a mouth of a woman. John Chrysostom. The female sex is weak and fickle. Augustine. If woman is not given to man for help in bearing children for what help could she be Martin Luther for a woman has a mind weaker than a man John Calvin they may acknowledge themselves as in, as inferior in consequence to the superiority of the male sex John Knox woman in her greatest perfection was made to serve and obey man that comes from his book the first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women. (laughs) I'm sorry, (sighs) docs. A tombstone's going to have a lot of regrets on it. All right, Thomas Aquinas, (laughs) women, woman is defective. Just keep it simple there. John Wesley, wife, be content to be insignificant. This is the history of the church, and it makes me cringe to even put these up here. I don't want it to, to seep somewhere, somewhere deep inside of your own thinking about yourself here, but I think it needs to be said that from every century, from very different traditions with very different views on the end times, different views on what, on what it means, to uh, what baptism is, like every different tradition, but one thing that the church tradition has found a sad unity on is the inferiority of women. And so, yes, the church has this this view of the inferiority of women, but I would argue that the Bible does not, that God does not. And that's why this second point is titled discrepancies and air quotes, because 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14 are only supposed discrepancies. Because if all of scripture highlights their essential role in leadership, we have to ask, what are we missing in this text? Scripture has apparent contradictions. It doesn't have genuine contradictions, right? Scripture actually doesn't have actual contradictions. It has apparent ones. We have to ask why why these things don't match up. And so let's look at these discrepancies. They're fun. Okay, here we go. 1 Timothy 2, verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Let's just stop there and let's leave that verse up on the screen for us to look at. I understand the first gut response to that is probably, Ooh, um, or that seems like what may, many have argued the plain and simple reading here. Um, but I want you to see this that, that women should learn in quietness, and that quietness is the natural disposition of a learner, male or female to learn you have to be quiet so you can listen and you can learn and grow like that is that that's that's obvious but verse 12 is really the crux of it all verse 12 is the one where he says i do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man and to many that's the plain and simple reading women can't teach and yet the rest of the scriptures women are teaching and prophesying and it's not condemned it's commended And so what is happening here? Remember, it's an apparent contradiction. It's an apparent discrepancy, not genuine. And so I would say that the key to this whole thing is that word authority. Because today, most churches don't even apply verse 12. Most churches don't even apply verse 12, no matter what they think about it. Can they teach? Yes or no? And most of these churches would say, well, they can't teach with that type of authority. And so they they know that that word authority modifies what type of teaching that is. And so they would say a woman could teach a kid's ministry. They can teach a women's Bible study. But this has problems because don't kids need authoritative teaching? Don't women need authoritative teaching? Also, kids' ministry is male and female. At what age do they grow up And it becomes unacceptable for us to teach them, for women to teach them. 18, 19, 20, 21, at what stage is it wrong there? And so we know that most people actually aren't doing this. Also, I feel like most churches I know recommend podcasts where women are speaking on it. So is it okay for us to learn from a podcast? Is it okay for us to learn from books? What about seminars? I know we have many churches that do women's seminars and they go and learn from people there. Right? Right? So I don't think the church is actually embodying this. What counts as teaching with authority? Two years ago, um, we were questioned by even having a woman read scripture on stage. Because that could be having a woman teaching with authority. (laughs) Like, at at what point we're like, what are we doing here? We're just making up rules. Like, it seems absolutely absurd and inconsistent with all of the scriptures. And so what does it mean to teach with authority? Well, let's look at it. That Greek word there is the word authentain or authenteo. And and there's two options for understanding this word, authority. One is it's to govern or to rule as an exercise authority over This is our typical way of thinking of authority. But then two, it's to dominate, to domineer, or to abuse. And so in the first sense, you could think of 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul talks about having authority over your spouse's body. The word there for authority is excusia. And that's the one that is used all over the the New Testament. It's it's the common word for authority there. That's the the word for authority that we should expect Paul to use in 1 Timothy 2. But instead, he uses this loaded term, authentane. This loaded term authentain, and the only use for that, that word in centuries before Paul, is to dominate, to abuse, to give orders at, to bark at, to shout at, and in some cases to even murder. And so the choice of such a rare word in this section, given the cultural connections, makes one wonder how big a problem Paul and Timothy are dealing with in the church in Ephesus right here. Like in the church in Ephesus, in the city of Ephesus, there is the, the temple of Artemis, which is one of the seven wonders of the world, right? In Artemis and Apollo were children of Zeus. Artemis spurned the male gods and made herself superior to all men. And there is this temple, in, uh, temple of Artemis, and there is the cult of Artemis, where all these women were, we're, we're coming in there, and we're, we're, we're worshiping at the temple, and we're, we're rightly pushing against a male-dominated society, but pushing against it and now going overboard and now joining the cult and pitting women against men. And it became this, this, this war between them. And so Paul comes in and says, I do not permit women to abuse men and to dominate them in this way, which seems like a really important point to make to this city, to this church, given the culture they're living in. In the city of Ephesus. And so we've taken this very specific command and we've now said we've misapplied it to all women everywhere. If you don't believe me, even as a complementarian, if that's where you're at, what do we do with verses 13 through 15? What do we do? Like Those verses make no sense if we don't understand the, the specific cultural references that are happening in that text right there. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not the one who deceit, one deceived; it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. And so, let's just leave these, this up here. It's a wild verse. Most could say Paul is going back to creation. Paul is going back to creation, where he's trying to root his view of women in the created order. Adam wasn't deceived; it was the woman, and so that means that women are more easily deceived, is the argument that there is something ontologically inferior about them, and so we shouldn't teach them because they will be deceived, and then they will then, if they're let to be teachers, then teach others and perpetuate that deception, is the argument. And I just want to say, I'm sorry. Do I need to list all of the reasons that that is just horse dung? Like (laughs) Adam was, was there, and he wasn't deceived, But that's not to his credit. (laughs) Like, Adam deliberately disobeyed God. He wasn't deceived, you're correct. He let the serpent deceive Eve. And every male from Adam forward has been deceived. The 12 disciples were deceived. And so there is nothing genetically that makes male or female more prone to sin. And then verse 15 is just wild if you ignore the culture of the day. Like, women will be saved through childbearing? <laughs> what? What? I thought it was by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Also through childbearing alone. <laughs> clearly, Paul forgot to add that. The solas, the five, six solas now of the Reformation, right? But what happens, like, if, what if you're single? What if you struggle with infertility? Paul clearly doesn't believe that you are saved by having babies, It would contradict everything he says in Ephesians 2, That is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, right? And so what does he mean here? Yes, he's going back to creation. He's going back to Adam and Eve who sinned. But remember the, the curses of the fall. The curses of the fall upon Eve are the increase in pains and childbearing. And in that day, until the advances of modern medicine, childbirth was the primary cause of death and disabilities for women, and it was even more so in that day where the Roman Empire, girls are married at the age around the age of 12 and would put that at even more risk. So you can see what Paul is doing here. He's talking to toxic relationships that are abounding in 1 Timothy. And Paul is saying men shouldn't dominate women and women shouldn't dominate men and it shouldn't be this, this abusive relationship. Let me give you this quote from... Someone who's been really influential to in me, understanding understand this all, Cynthia Long Westfall. She writes in her book, Paul and Gender. Assigning joint responsibility to a husband for his wife's safety in childbirth would have been relevant, revolutionary, and effective. Men controlled the size of the family and the resources that could secure greater care, health, and safety during the pregnancy and childbirth. Furthermore, it was common for men to order their wives to have unsafe abortions as a form of birth control, A husband's devotion to love, faith, holiness, and particularly sexual self-control in the marital relationship could save his wife from a large range of dangers that were and are associated with childbirth. Do we see the love and care that God is extending to the women here? Like, he is not limiting women from doing ministry he is limiting toxic relationships and commanding husbands to self-control and to consider their wives when they're talking about family planning. Doesn't this sound like the God of the rest of the Bible? Like some might say, I don't know, I don't know. But you, gotta, you have to understand what's happening in the culture this time. That God is caring for the women in this way. To consider each other. And you might go, well, let's look at 1 Corinthians 14, and I understand that this sermon's already long, and it's going to go longer, but now's the time. Let's deal with it. Let's go there. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34, women should remain silent in churches. You might say, see, another argument. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. More verses that are just hard to read from our Bibles. And I just want to say, from, from both sides, wherever you're at on this issue, let's, just, let's, let's, let's have the position of a learner to not feel attacked from the way that may sound to you, but also... Don't feel attacked because of the way I, my passion and excitement about this. I want us to understand. I want to have a good, healthy conversation here. I'm with you. It took me, I, I, after seminary, after reading all the commentaries, after doing all this work, it, it, it took me a long time to come in here. I know this is complex. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 shouldn't contradict what he said elsewhere. Do we agree with that? That, that scripture shouldn't contradict itself. And in fact, within the. It, within the own book, within its own letter. Paul shouldn't contradict himself within his own letter. And so if Paul says something in 1 Corinthians 11, it shouldn't contradict what he's about to say in 1 Corinthians 14. Can we agree that's, that's probably good understanding of Scripture? Let Scripture interpret Scripture and let it, let it make sense of itself? Well, that's what happens here. Paul is telling us that, that women should prophesy, that they should teach as long as they have their head covered. And prophecy is God's word spoken to people, right? And therefore, I would say it—I would arguably say it carries more authority than anything I've ever done from this pulpit. That women are prophesying, speaking God's word to people, and so he encourages their speaking and prophesying in one place, and then three chapters later, he says, "Remain silent," and almost chauvinistically says, "Learn from their husbands." You go, gosh. (laughs) Well. Let's not impose our Western culture on the first century text here. What do we know about the first century? In this time, women's testimonies were not even allowed in court. They were not even even allowed in court in that sense because only male voices counted. And therefore, only males could get a formal education. And so for those who have not been trained, he's asking for those who have not been trained to not speak up. But they are to remain silent, remember, that that position of a learner, and learn from the person who would be there to teach them, in that case would have been their husbands. And is it always forever disgraceful for a woman to speak? And I would just say, absolutely not. That goes against everything we just talked about. The book of Acts shows us how many women are leading house churches and speaking and prophesying. So what's happening? Let's go back to the head coverings in, in chapter 11. What's he talking about there? Does that reveal something? Does that tell us, does it give an insight into what's happening here? I would say yes. In the city of Corinth, it's much like the city of Las Vegas, in the sense that you might think of that every kind of sexual experience was available there. And so to to act like a Corinthian was to engage in, in all these sexual immoralities. And the term Corinthian girl was a euphemism for prostitute, right? And so and it's in this setting, in this setting, Paul says, all women should have the right to veil. That's important. In a day when slaves and prostitutes and freed women were prohibited from veiling, Paul says, you have the right to veil. And it's, it's virtually assumed by almost all scholars that, that Paul is making women veil, but in a culture and in a church that has struggled with sexual sin, this is not a restriction or a sign of subservience, it is a symbol of honor and protection <laughs> that Paul is giving women. Paul is saying he gives this, this sign of protection and honor to every single woman, regardless of class. And so in Roman law, if a woman was, was not dressed like a matron, which meant that her, her hair wasn't put up, and that she did not have her veil, if she did not dress like that, and a man accosted her, assaulted her, sexually he couldn't be held liable. He couldn't be held liable because her hair seduced him. The woman's hair was considered to be her chief element of beauty, and men were rendered powerless, is the argument, and therefore not liable. And in a culture that doesn't allow slaves and prostitutes and freed women to veil You were now considered open and available when you walked around without the veil. And so where could you go to worship? Where could you go to worship without fear of someone accosting you? Of someone attempting something towards you? And in this setting, Paul says, you can veil. He cares for the women so much across class lines that you can veil. It is an act of love. And this goes into the dazzling implications of reading the scriptures in this light. And I've heard people ask, is God anti-women? And it just breaks my heart that the question has to even be asked. Is God anti-women? But... When I look at the texts here, like it, we're, we're told you can't speak, you must be silent, you must veil, and if we don't consider the cultural elements that are happening in our text, it may sound that way. Yeah. But if we see the specific abuses and heresies that God is contrasting, it's the exact opposite of our interpretation. It's the exact opposite of our interpretation. To, to, I mean, to me, learning this way of reading the scripture here has just opened the scriptures, up. I mean, it's made it come alive to me. And go like, that sounds like the God of the Bible that I know. That sounds more like the God who cares for every single man, woman, and child for the Imago day. In these passages alone, 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14 just sound out of character with God. But seeing how God lovingly offers a veil to women and speaks into toxic marriages... I'm just blown away by the love and compassion of our God. Amen? Amen. That's who we worship. We have to consider the culture. And considering the culture isn't a bad thing. There are lots of things that were cultural in the Bible that we don't do today. We don't command you to greet each other with a holy kiss today. That was cultural then. That's something that we don't bring along with us. Also, do women have to have long hair? Can men have long hair? I'm good either way. <laughs> uh, if you want to say that you have a higher view of Scripture because of this, then I would say you have to make sure that your women are veiling. You have to be consistent. Let's say this is what it says right here, and we have to apply it for all times. Then, we ha- then you have to be consistent. But some of y'all might be as fearful as I was when I first came to this. I was like, I don't know. It just feels like this is a slippery slope. It's saying some things are culture, then everything's culture, and we can't ever even preach from the Bible ever again. I get that. That's where I was. Is it a slippery slope to giving up everything? And I would absolutely argue absolutely not. We didn't, we didn't come to this conclusion based on what we thought would be easier We came to this conclusion because we considered scriptures and compared and contrast scripture with scripture. This is our our hermeneutic of how to understand the Bible. What does God say? What does he say in this passage and this passage? And that's our best that we can understand it here. We compare and contrast. And so if two passages sound out of tune, just like you hit a bad note on a guitar, sound out of tune, you go, what is wrong there? And so we see women are leading, and we need to ask, what is God doing? He doesn't condemn women, pastors, or elders. He's speaking to two churches in this time, and elsewhere, he is unleashing women to set the world on fire. That's what he's doing all throughout Scripture. Therefore, the one implication that is that sad that needs to be said, that we want to say today, is that God is not anti-women. He is very much for women. That is clear from Scripture. He sees you as critical to his work here on earth, to subdue and to have dominion over the earth. Secondly, amidst this equality of male and female that we need to uphold, this goes into the passage we quoted earlier from Galatians 3.28 that says that there is no male and female. And yet, this does not mean that we go away with all distinctions. The Bible doesn't blur distinctions and neither should we. It celebrates the complements of one another. It celebrates how we complement one another. Like a choir with a bass section and the tenors and the altos and the sopranos that each have their, their benefit and value. But when they come together, there is a beautiful harmony that comes together. We don't know whether you're a bass or an alto. That <laughs> We are all coming together. We celebrate those uniqueness. And so we uphold the unity of male and female, but we don't hold a uniformity. We see male and female as distinct in the same way that we would say we're not colorblind. Because we see black and white in every shade in between, and it gives us a fuller picture of the kingdom of God. It is a beautiful way to see the scriptures. We need each other to help us understand our king better. Like, I need you to help me understand the king better. And I'm not the man today if it weren't for the important women in my life. And I just want to say right now, I repent are not seeing this sooner as your pastor. I've missed out. And I ask you to forgive me. But this is the good news of the gospel, that we are, we are all coming to the table solely by grace and grace alone. That's the only thing that brings us, the only thing that, 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 that brings us together. Male, female, We only come to the table by grace alone. And so the the good news of the gospel is that it is a full community welcomed at the table that no one is excluded from. And so not your ethnicity, not your gender, not whether you got it right or wrong on a certain issue, not whether you've had a good or bad week on a particular sin. We are all welcome at the table by grace and grace alone. No restrictions. You can come to that table There's nothing that hinders us. And so this is why I believe that the church needs women in leadership. We need their wisdom. We need their insights. We've missed out when we don't seek it out. And so at Mosaic, right now, we actually have multiple women in our officer training. We have multiple women in deacon and elder training. And we we are training them. And at the end of that training, in the summer, we'll announce all of these candidates to you. You'll get to know them. And you'll get to vote on them. That's where we're at. Our view of what a shepherding elder is, is that it's no different from what a pastor does, except a pastor has been asked to give more time to it. And so we believe an elder is a pastor is an elder. The only difference is that pastors have been trained and tested at a higher level and have been entrusted with the primary teaching roles. So, if the Lord brings a qualified woman to pastor at Mosaic, we would not get in his way. (laughs) of caring for you in this way. Beloved, let the dazzling nature of God's love move you this morning. Like move you to outdo one another, not with power, not with domineering. That's that's not the way of Jesus. Like Romans 12, let's outdo one another. Outdo one another competitively with love. Outdo one another competitively with with honor. How can I bring you more honor? Like, that is the beauty. The future is bright if we can see it that way. The future is bright if we can look at the data from, from the scriptures. If we can actually look at the cultural stuff that's happening in the discrepancies. And then we can see the dazzling beauty of God's love for all men and women in his creation. Let me pray.